Hi, and welcome to this episode of The VFX Show. I'm Mike Seymour, joined just by Matt uh, today. Matt Wellen, how are you? I'm pretty good. Yeah, we are uh, down a man. Uh, Brother Diamond is off with his uh, uh, company doing a, a I, can't, I don't know how much I can say about it other than he has a big project he's doing in Korea, which sounds really, yeah. really cool. So we're, we're super excited for him. And um, I know he's going to be doing amazing things and will regale us with tales of his uh, adventures upon his return. He said he was going to spend some time in Japan, too, on his way back because he really wanted to go there. Yeah, yeah, and no, absolutely brilliant stuff that he's doing, but I so can't talk about it at all. Yeah. Not that we know about it, of course, Matt. We don't know about <laughs> yeah. it at all. He didn't tell yeah. us anything. <laughs> yeah, no, it's still it's kind of a mystery. <laughs> what is he doing? I don't know. Yeah. Hey, um, we were here to talk to you about Foundation. Uh, the end of season two has just aired as we speak, and uh, this is a remarkable show, um, remarkable in many respects, I guess. I, I've got to say, Matt, for me, um, there's visual effects stuff that's super interesting. There are casting and uh, actually behind the scenes directorial and uh, showrunner kind of things that are all really interesting. So just super keen to talk about this series and one of my favorite shows on air uh, at the moment. But but what did you think of it? Well, I, I mean, I've been enjoying it. I watched uh, season one and I, I have to admit, I I love reading science fiction books as a kid growing up. I, I read so many different books. This is not which is weird because it's such a classic, but this is not a book that I read. So I was really, did you read it as a kid growing up or as a young adult? No, I was heavily into the iRobot stuff. And yeah, me when too. I heard that this was a robot free zone as a kid, I was like, well, I don't want to read that then. Right. Like I was always yeah. in protest, like <laughs> the robots are the best thing. So if you don't have any robots and like, it's kind of no accident that I ended up actually making digital humans for a living. Right. Yeah. You know? um, <laughs> but there is a robot in this too, but yeah, I never read the book. Well, I didn't know that. <laughs> Yeah, right. Me neither. I never read the book. And so, you know, to some extent, you know, the the sort of before it came to air and I heard that they were they were doing it, right? There were stories in the trade press about it. I thought, oh, that, that sounds kind of interesting. Like I, you know, be curious to see what they do. They had the first trailer that they showed on the, you know, what was at the time anyway, the relatively new um Apple TV plus service, right? Where they were generating their own content. And the trailer looked, you know, it looked really epic. Like, wow, this looks really cool. And and so I watched the first season and was sort of like trying to figure out what was going on. It was sort of cryptic. And then I finally hit this moment where I, I for me, at least it, I was able to latch on to kind of a, a narrative metaphor that helped me kind of, you know, really grok what was going on. And for all lack of a better explanation, I think it's kind of Game of Thrones, like science fiction Game of Thrones kind of is how I, I was able to kind of get my head around what it was that I was watching. But then I think a lot of the, um, what's been really exciting is the the cast, the um, the actors uh, that I thought were pretty great by the end of season one. I'm like, wow, this is actually pretty compelling. And I started to kind of follow the story a little bit better. It started to make more sense and I could kind of grok what was happening. But I think season two, which just concluded actually today here in the United States, I watched the last episode this morning in preparation for, for this conversation. It's It raises the stakes to an even higher level, I think, in terms of production value, um, intensity of story and develop, character development. Um, there's some really exciting stuff that we can talk about. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm surprised how much I've been enjoying it. Like it's 
it's up there in terms of science fiction um and kind of sci-fi fantasy type stuff that's on television right now for me it's this and uh the other one that i loved this year was uh, brave new worlds again season two of that show i think well we might have to talk about that in an upcoming um <laughs> episode but i wanted to i wanted to start actually because i was the same as you like i really got into it and then unusual for me like i didn't know that much about what was going on behind the scenes and then at some point i was like oh i just adore this show and i uh started to listen to the odd podcast and digging in and then i was bumping into all these people behind the scenes that i was like oh these are all people i really admire and like the work of how could i have not kind of i mean i came to it naturally and uh organically but you know had i not if you just told me that these people were involved i would have like tuned in anyway so let me start with david goyer David Goy is the showrunner. Are you aware with of David's work? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, a name that is not unfamiliar uh, to anybody who's, you know, a fan of uh, certainly <laughs> uh, Dark City. No, <laughs> the Dark Knight. I think right. The Batman Begins. Like, I mean, as a writer, um, and some of the um, uh, Del Toro stuff too, right? I think, and uh, yeah, he's been around for a long time. It's like a guy doing tv shows video game stuff and then several movies yeah yeah like just as a writer you touched on a few of them there. let me list a few of them like dark city which i think was a really interesting screenplay yeah it's kind just of a Alex precursor to the, the matrix kind of really yeah in a lot of absolutely ways. and even just before that he wrote uh the crow uh which oh, was right yeah brandon so Lee. these are like and then he went, he did commercial stuff like Blade, Mission to Mars, which I remember came out in right. 2000. Was it the yeah. first VES thing ever? Um, so he did the Blade stuff. He did three or four of those. Then he does Batman Begins um, and does the Batman stuff with Christopher Nolan. Let's not get into a Christopher Nolan thing because people found, no, no. found out arguing about it on the last episode upsetting. Um, oh. But he... <laughs> No, but he does other interesting films like Jumper, which I always thought was a really interesting screenplay as well. Um, what so did he do on does, Jumper? Was he a writer, producer? Uh, he, he was the writer, yeah. Writer and oh, Jumper, yeah. That wasn't a Ryan Johnson written story, just that he didn't he direct that? Uh, you might be right. Um, but uh, just continuing on, um, yeah. Jumper was, isn't that right? Doug Lyman wasn't at the Oh no, I'm thinking of sorry, I'm thinking of yeah. the other one. The um so anyway, it's other Dark Knight stuff, right? Uh he ends up doing obviously Dark Knight Rises and stuff. Then he does Man of Steel. So he's a writer on that. He goes on, he does some work on Godzilla, he does uh Batman versus Superman as a as a writer and an EP. He does um like a bunch of like interesting uh things. He ends up working with James Cameron. Um, he was on Terminator Dark Fate, mm -hmm. uh, again, as a writer. And of course, when you're a writer, he's not obviously the only writer. Um, but anyway, so he does a whole lot of stuff. He uh, has produced stuff like Tomorrow War. And so he's done all this stuff. And then he ends up as the uh, showrunner and writer uh, of Foundation. And the guy is just an encyclopedia of uh, visual uh, effects, epic kind of films but from a writing standpoint as much as from a producing or um showrunner point of view so like if that wasn't enough yeah then um a lot of the episodes that i really liked this season were directed by alec graves now alec graves i fell in love with as a director for his work on west wing i'm a huge west wing fan oh, interesting and so alec graves does a bunch of episodes like i think he he, he actually 
promoted right, to uh, executive producer right on um, mm -hmm. West Wing. So phenomenal showrunner. But then, of course, he goes on to do six episodes of Game of Thrones, which yep. is interesting. Your reference. So now you've got one of his most accomplished uh, directors. But the other person that um, ended up directing at least two episodes this season mm -hmm. uh, was uh, Roxanne uh, Dawson. So she, Roxanne was um, uh, Balana on Star Trek Voyager, right? Oh, so right. she was an actress on that show. Yeah. And then she became a really good director. And episodes, the second last and the third last episodes of these seasons, which are incredibly complicated, mm -hmm. um, she directed. So she's a clearly super accomplished director. Uh, she worked director. on The Americans, House of Cards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some totally awesome stuff. That's cool. So yeah, I didn't do a deep dive into this Star Trek Enterprise, Star Trek Voyager. Yeah. As a... I just think it was really interesting. Like these, <laughs> these uh, great kind of um, uh, creative forces. Like Alex Graves is just alone. But, you know, you had me at Alex, but um, yeah, Roxana and the rest of them, it's all just really, really uh, interesting stuff. So clearly the show has um, great, uh, uh, I guess, roots or like, you know, whatever. And then the other thing is Apple has been really generous in their um, support of the show. So I don't know if you know this one, but in this season of Foundations, they were shooting for 213 days. Oh wow, that's like remarkable for one yeah. season of a TV show, and I'm I'm kind of stunned these days at just the resources that you can put into a really good TV show. Well, and this um, I think or, budget wise, I mean, I I don't have any data to back this up, but I feel like what we're seeing on screen in season one and two from an effects standpoint, from just an overall production value standpoint, costume design, set design. I mean, they are sparing no expense. I mean, it really does feel like this is, especially in season two, I think like they're spending some real cabbage here to make this a really top shelf kind of prestige television show. Yeah. Chris McLean was the uh, Vision Effects supervisor. And uh, I, look, I agree. I think ep uh, season one had that amazing uh, space elevator that collapsed. Yeah. Just some extraordinary stuff uh, in that season. But this season, you jump into any episode and they are so dense. But the thing I found really rewarding about this is there's clearly like an A, B, C, and sometimes a D plot running. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes when they jump to the C plot or the B plot, I'm like, get back to the main action. I don't care about these people, right? Like- <laughs> You know, it seems like a filler, like, yeah, 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 whatever. Get back to the bit that we care about. Um, in Ep 9, I think, I found myself going, like, literally every time they jumped to the next subplot, I was like, meanwhile, <laughs> you know, and then I was completely embedded in what was going on on Trandor. And then, uh, uh, and then um, the Metallicas. And then I'd be, like, completely worried about what uh, Demzel was up to. And I'd be completely worried about, like, everything was just important even though they were notionally not the A-line story for that week, it was like every sub-story um, just really mattered. And, well, and I think by uh, the end of this second season, which which again ended you know, today, this is September 15th, I guess, right? So as this, this season ends, uh, what I found really sort of gratifying too, and you know, I guess mild spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't been watching this show, like they really started to 
in a way that hadn't previously happened. A lot of the dots started to really become connected by the end of the second season where all of those characters you're talking about who were kind of the subplots that felt like maybe more minor and tertiary kind of narratives, like they really started to come together in a way where the interconnectedness of everything started to make a lot more sense. And in the same way that I think you could have had that same experience watching one of the first few seasons of Game of Thrones, you know, where you're like, oh, we're going here again. Like, I don't want to go here. I want to go back to the wall or go back to King's Landing or whatever, you know. And I think it's really similar in that regard, structurally, where the stories that I maybe was less interested in or found a little bit less compelling, they became more interesting this this season because they started to kind of, um, you know, sort of jibe together in a sense that they were really... Um, connecting to what feels like the larger narrative of this struggle between the foundation and empire. What I what I really appreciate building on what you just said is when it feels like it's not um, just uh, an easy out for the writers. They, they, they've written themselves into a corner. They have completely separate plot lines. You think like how uh, can stuff that's been happening on Terminus have any impact with what's going on with Gale and, you know, with the um, Metallicas? And then they they link the two in a way that just doesn't feel like a kind of phony, um, oh, well, we have to link these stories somehow, so we'll put in a kind of a, like a hokey kind of whatever. There's consequential thought that's gone in to mapping out the season and they've given themselves really difficult problems to get out of and given themselves really a strong emotional beats to write into that required somebody to do a lot of thinking. Like I hate it when it seems like the writing or maybe after it's edited and whatever, it just seems kind of sloppy. It seems like, uh, like you'll see some shows where you just think like, really, that's like some kind of MacGyverish thing that just got him out of that problem. But like, I feel like you haven't worked hard enough to give me that. Whereas I never felt like these were things that they hadn't worked hard to get. Um, yeah, I think I so would agree. I, I would agree mostly, except that I, I will say that there were two things that happened in season two where okay. I felt like, and, and this, this comes from, again, I just to profess again, to be clear, like I haven't read the books. So sure. without having read the books, like kind of some of the machinations of you know, the intent, the original intent of the original writer, right? Um, maybe lost in how it's sort of translated to television and stuff. I don't know. But um, there were a couple of things where the the Jared Harris character, who, by the way, what, what a great actor. I love, he's just mm. magnetic on screen, not unlike his father, Richard Harris. Um, he is such a great actor and so fun to watch and just so charismatic and he plays uh, a few different iterations of himself. But there were moments where uh, the sort of magical nature of uh, the vault and of his, be it his clone or his projection, um, seemed to magically solve problems that I felt like we as the viewer had no... Um, uh, there was no inkling that that was going to happen. Okay. And those felt a little bit like magical solutions in the writer's so, room. So what was, a, what was an example of that, for example? Uh, well, I to be specific, I you might have to help me out here, but I think if I'm not mistaken in the this most recent episode, there was a yeah. moment where uh, 
you believe that everyone on Terminus, Terminus? has been killed by yep. the fleet from Empire. Uh, yep. And then we discover that all along, uh, you know, it was part of this grand scheme and plan, which I don't know that they laid the breadcrumbs for. Maybe I missed them. But that, and then the vault shows up, and not only is uh, Selden there with, uh, you know, some of the other main characters, but then all the people of uh, Terminus, I believe, were saved too, somehow, if, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? S yeah, so I agree with, you know, I agree. I agree that to a certain extent, having all the people in uh, the vault just seemed like it jumped. Like, how'd you get all those people in the vault so quickly when it's, it's magic. the last thing we saw, <clears throat> yeah, the last we saw it was, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the um, ship that's going to have a uh, sort of a quantum explosion or some kind of um, temporal yeah, they were, uh, collapse. They were all warping just, into each other or something, right? Well, no, no. So there's two things that's going on. They, they, the ship that is uh, has been commandeered and are now owned effectively by the um, foundation has been defeated, and it's in the previous episode oh, right. heading down to terminus. And when it hits, it's going to have this weird kind of singularity uh, that will destroy implosion. the planet. Yeah. Planet, yeah. And and to your point, I agree. We see that heading down towards the planet. We see people on the planet looking up at it, and there doesn't seem like physically enough time to get from there into the vault. And there's nothing that's so far indicated that they can be magically beamed into the vault. So they had to have all been gathered up, run into the vault to be saved. The vault itself, we had seen earlier, had got to Terminus because right. it worked as a spaceship and it flew. So that bit you could you could get. But I agree, getting the people in there seemed, um, that seemed like a magic jump. I'll give you that one totally. That was... Um, if you hadn't had the shot of them all on the planet kind of looking up going, oh no, here it comes, it's about to hit us, and it felt like it would hit us in a couple of minutes, then um, if not 30 seconds, yeah. then yeah, I would have bought that one. Um, I, I don't you... mind. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I don't mind that that there was a plan to sacrifice the planet um, to to be the thing that lured Empire, because the master chess game, that is almost like a checkmate is that uh, Harry's managed to get Empire or particularly this egotistical version of Day to bring yeah. the fleet to Terminus. And then through um, uh, Holo Mallow, uh, Homer Mallow getting the con going with the spaces, it's going to collapse his entire fleet and by losing the spaces, remove Empire's ability to jump around the galaxy. So this is going to completely um hobble empire in a way that is strategically massive because if you've got technology to jump around the galaxy and without the spaces which we've established mm -hmm. and your enemy is robbed of the ability it's be like if you were talking about a uh, world war ii attack of fleets and you can't launch any aircraft carriers because your entire navy is sunk um well or your enemy has just... air superiority or something yeah yeah, yeah exactly so your your enemy can take aircraft carriers wherever they want, launch planes wherever they want. Meanwhile, you can't launch any planes from anything but your home base because you don't have a Navy anymore. Now, that's that's incredibly crippling on a notional empire that's meant to be ruling, you know, thousands of worlds. So it's a, it's a hell of a move. And I could believe that you would be willing to sacrifice a planet and 
play big game of chess like that. But yeah, in the specific of saving everybody, I agree that was a bit like, and also um, Constance, uh, uh, friend whose name escapes me, the guy that um, appears first to her when she gets in the craft, the the guy that was the drunk, like where did he come from and how did he get there? I don't know, you know, don't, don't follow that. Yeah, I thought he had so, died and then he was alive yeah, was again. Like, I was sort of confused. Well, but you know what's, what's, and so those are some of the things that happen that are kind of, and maybe those are made clear clearer either in the book books or perhaps they'll be made clear you know in season three or something of that ilk but how some of those things took place because i feel like they conveniently occurred uh quickly in this final episode but that was another thing that i i started to really feel more deeply as a viewer in a way that was really satisfying this season was I felt like the articulation of some of the larger philosophical themes that I assume are a part of of the actual books too, which is this kind and it and it really started to become more apparent um, this kind of uh, intellectual or philosophical battle going on between these two different ways of thinking, and it almost feels connected to you know world history, like when we talk about which I think you know. I think people now say it's kind of inappropriately named like the dark ages, you know, moving into the enlightenment, you know, and um, this idea of in this story, this kind of um, uh, magical sort of mystical way of thinking about the universe versus uh, a mathematical universe or a scientific universe. And I think those two philosophical things, the push and pull between them in the story between in particular, the, the, um, Harry Seldon character, uh, you know, Gail Dornick and sort of those, uh, the followers of foundation versus sort of the, the corrupt, evil, decanting powers of empire. And of, uh, I think probably my favorite character, uh, I mean, it's hard not to, but, uh, Demerzel, I think is probably one of the most compelling and interesting characters weirdly, cause she's the one non-human character too. I think she's magnificent. I, I just, uh, yeah, yeah. I Finnish, a Finnish her. actor, I guess Laura Byrne, I think is is her yeah. name, and fascinating uh, performance that uh, becomes she becomes so much more significant and important in a way that I didn't really, I personally just didn't see that coming at the beginning. But once it slowly yeah. kind of comes to pass, and it becomes so interesting and so compelling too. She makes some really great acting choices as well. I don't know if you noticed, but she always has her hands at a front, yeah, which just I never gesture. paid any attention to. But that gesture happens when she's betrayed by the original um, uh, uh, Cleon, when he basically yeah. entraps her and then says, you know, like, do you love me? And she's forced to say that she does. And at that moment of where she has nothing to protect herself because she's forced to say that she loves him. She's forced to feel that she brings the hands up in front of her. It's like a, a gesture where she's kind of protecting herself, but she can't protect herself because she's not allowed to by a programming, but she has this kind of symbolic kind of placing her hands in front of her as almost to protect her, her dare I say soul, um, because she can't protect herself in any other way. And she's forced to do these things that she well, and it's that would not otherwise do. It's that thematic conflict too throughout the narrative of this, you know, do we function in a world where everything we do is preordained and fated somehow, or do we have free will? 
And she's and- a character who she has the the awareness of a belief in a sense of free will, but in the case of being a, a robot, in this case, she's a robot, right? So she is programmed in a way that she must follow these set directives that are in conflict with her, uh, maybe her, for lack of a better term, her desires, her her programming conflicts her desires. So she has actually no free will, oddly. Yeah, I think for a start, like we have to remember that this was written by Asimov years and years ago, right? So yeah. he, so it's going to sound a little cliche that he just <laughs> right. looked at the Roman Empire, but like he defined the cliche, right? But it was a great trick to just look at the Roman Empire and place the Roman Empire in space. Mm-hmm. Basically, Roman Empire leading to the Dark Ages that you're talking about, expansion to a point with you know supreme kind of rulers. Um, so he's he did these really interesting things. He's like, okay, well, you know, how do the emperors? Okay, well, instead of having them kind of kill each other or be just you know fought over, so who runs um, the Roman Empire after the next person? We'll just have this genetic uh, clone dynasty. But having said that, like you know, you've, those themes of empire, the Dark Ages, um, and then the fact that the science that you referred to earlier becomes mm. a religion. Yeah. in the absence of anything else. And so I think a lot of those things uh, were innovative when they were first written and still work today. Well, of course, one, we see one, them more clearly. One today. really innovative thing I think too is at least, you know, I can't think of another story that I've seen like this in recent times, but the character of empire, that empire is uh, essentially three genetically identical sort of uh you know uh dawn the young <laughs> empire day the powerful like you know uh, lee pace character and then dusk and it's the elderly uh but they're all the same person but they all live at the same time you know d- different versions of the same person um but they all live at the same time and they are all essentially the same mind, but occupying a different sort of temporal space in their own aging process. And so the the conflicts and dialogues that take place between the youthful, exuberant version of yourself versus the, you know, midlife, like apex of one's power version of oneself, and then the more maybe philosophical, potentially more emotional, um, sentimental version of oneself in the older age is fascinating to see those different um, concepts of the self uh, engaging in debate and dialogue as empire, like that empire is this kind of weird triad in a strange way is is so, is such an interesting uh, thing to write. I think it's fascinating to watch. One one of the big conceits of the show that I little a little bit of a bump on, but I can okay. I'm going to go with it. Is that of course every time we visit empire throughout the ages, we happen to get to them at the point when they are all exactly the relatively same age, yeah, and thus they can use all the same actors <laughs> conveniently, right? Yeah, yeah. Like we don't we don't hit it like ten years earlier or ten years later. Day is right. always almost exactly the age that day happened to be last time we happened to visit empire. 
which of course allows the actors to be used and avoids visual effects and blah, blah, blah. It is a bit of a like major coincidence that every time, even at the end of this episode, when she um, brings three uh, Yeah, they're all the of, same age again. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're all the same age again, all the same actors. And I'm like, yeah. mm, okay, I mean, I get why you're doing this and I get that it would be super confusing to the audience if there were different actors being used. And, and I have to say, in a show where you could completely lose track of what's going on and be like, yes. uh, I give up, right? Uh, Alec Graves directed more episodes than anyone else, so I give him a lot of credit. I think he's done seven between the two mm-hmm. seasons. But that you just don't lose track. I, that's what I find remarkable. I don't go, I've given up. Who is this one again? I have no idea who this is. I'll just, uh, whatever, wait till the next action sequence and I'll just enjoy it again. Now, I found that I could follow them. But, yeah, it is a big conceit. That being said, I think it's really interesting how because Day is uh, affected in different ways by his environment, you've got this whole nurture-nature thing going on as well. Mm-hmm. And so you have a slightly different version of Day each time. Like this season's Day is a complete dick, right? It's just like totally. an egomaniac. And what but a then great he's performance with- to Lee Pace, oh, yeah. just from Halt and Catch Fire, another fantastic series like that's kind of a fictional telling of the early days of uh, the personal computer universe, but Lee Pace plays a kind of Steve Jobs-esque character in that series, but he is fantastic in this series. He's such an asshole. So good. Did you recognize him as being uh, the protagonist in Guardians of the Galaxy for the famous, you know, dance sequence at the end? No, I, you know, I think I knew that he was in that, but I I wouldn't have recognized him because the heavy, heavy makeup that that character wore, but yeah. So it's nice to see him really front and centered. Yeah. And then, as you say, yeah. just doing great acting. Yeah. Also, uh, Terrence Mann does a terrific job. He's the guy who's the general, right? Who comes. Is no, no, Terrence uh, Mann is playing Dusk. Oh, Dusk, right. Okay, sorry. The general and, is and, uh, Ben Daniels, maybe. Is that right? And also, yeah. isn't that a nice touch with the general that the character is gay? But nobody makes a fuss about that, right? There's nothing about yeah, the no. fact that he happens to be gay. He's just happens to be gay, right? Well, that's another cool thing about the way that Goyer set up the show with as the showrunner is the cast is, uh, I mean, it's I, I feel kind of dumb even mentioning it, I guess, but I think it's worth mentioning. I mean, it's an incredibly diverse cast. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that that, uh, you know, is... Uh, correct and appropriate and and it's cool it makes the the actors that they cast to play who play gail dornick lou labelle and leah harvey who plays salvor are phenomenal actors they're super charismatic on screen as well as um uh brother constant uh the isabella laughland or laughland uh she's really great too i mean it's such a great cast with so many really interesting actors who I, I don't know that I'd seen them in a lot of other stuff. And so, and they carry huge parts of the narrative, um, a huge amount of weight, emotional weight and heft, in particular, the Salvor Harden and Gail Dornan characters who are r- the same age, roughly, but are mother and daughter through a kind of strange twist of time uh, yeah. traveling. Can I say, space. though, as much as I loved Constant, I thought that her, she's one of the few points whether it was directing or acting that just didn't land oh, like really? it was just and i'll tell you when it was it's when she's saying goodbye on the ship and she's going to be the only survivor 
And she says, Jen, you want to know what my name is? And he says, what? And she goes, Hope. And he goes, really? And she goes, no, no, just joking. And I was like, like that would have been funny on the page. And I feel like it just totally didn't land. Oh, I, I didn't have like, that experience at all. I thought when she said, she said her name was Hope and he's like, are you serious or whatever? And she says, no, but wouldn't that have been great or something like that? And yeah, I, actually, but I didn't think her delivery of that just, it, it didn't was work almost for like, It was like a, such a killer moment. She's saying goodbye to, which is now a lover. Yeah. Everybody's going to die. She thinks everybody on the planet's dead. She's probably going to die in space. And she's like, she's like, no, nah, no, nah, just kidding. No, no, no. You know, it's like, it's like Monty Python, right? Like, but, they, uh, but the two of them no, they said had I could go that, free. I mean, it's really? a fair, it's yeah. a fair, no, kidding, fair critique, fair critique. I guess I just thought that those two characters would, they had established prior a kind of, you know, a moonlighting kind of witty repartee with one another. And so it felt in keeping. I don't with think, that see, me, but... I, I love her. I think she looks really good on screen, but I just don't think that, that like to have landed that, they had to have landed the previous joke in the episode where she Fair goes, enough. you could have told, a, she, you could have told a, a brother because, you know, he says uh, he was in on it all the time and she, and I didn't even tell you. And she goes, wow, you could have told a brother. And I just feel like she never gets that connection in terms of the delivery. And that's just for me anyway. I did I, love what I they did with to... her eyes too, though. That was really interesting. And I'm so curious as to whether or not that was a, uh, it had to have been in, digitally enhanced, I think, as an effect. But I, I'm so curious. She has these the freakishly blue. blue, almost violet blue eyes. Which Isn't it interesting that the mule has those eyes? The mule has yeah. those eyes as well, just saying. Whomever that is. Mm. <laughs> I, by the way, I'm like you, don't know what's coming. I do know the yeah. mule is a huge character uh, in the books, but um, yeah. Hey, um, so just going back to visual effects for a second. Mm -hmm. um, when Chris McLean was asked what was the hardest shot to do, and I'm pretty sure he was joking, but he actually pointed to episode five. I don't know if you remember the episode five when they first discover the Mentalics and uh, they meet this kid and then uh, Harry Seldon says, she's not casting a shadow. And then you realize that it's fake. The not casting a shadow shot apparently was just, I'm sure it wasn't the hardest shot, but it was clearly a nightmare of a shot for them to pull off in that hmm. it just hadn't been shot in a way that would let you have shadows that would therefore not have a shadow on one character, but have multiple shadows on other characters. Right. It's one of those occasions sounding from the way Chris spoke. And I, of course, I don't know this for firsthand, but it sounded like one of those situations where it's like, well, we we have this plot point that the shadows uh, have to be sort of discovered by a character, but the mm -hmm. audience isn't got any point of view shot where they can see that for themselves and we kind of need it. And so they go, okay, but the light's coming from the wrong angle. <laughs> you know, it's like if the light would really been there the way they originally shot it, they wouldn't see the shadows because the shadows just wouldn't be evident to them. Do you know, what makes you know sense? what's funny? Yeah, totally. And what's funny about that is I remember when that, uh, I, I should have gone back and watched that bit again, because like, I remember the, that dialogue about the, they didn't have the shadow and that's how they knew it was, you know, a projection. Not a projection. Yeah. But I didn't, at the time, I didn't go back and look at the shot and in watching it through the first time, I'm just really working to follow the story and understand yeah. what's going on. And it wasn't an effect, which I, I probably is disappointing if it was one of the hardest ones to do, but it wasn't an effect that at least on first viewing, I didn't even notice it. So 
for better. Or I worse. didn't notice it. <laughs> I didn't notice it, but there was a wide shot that seemed slightly off. Mm. And I just bumped on it like a tiny bit. It seemed like a slightly odd cut type bump. And it's because they had to kind of, I think, effectively manufacture a shot, changing very obviously the light direction a bit so that you could at least show, the, otherwise the audience isn't going to buy it if you say, well, I've never seen the shadows and they can't, sure. oh, no shadow. Yeah, well, how would we know that? Like, you know, as an audience, you kind of need to see it as well. You can't just yeah. hear it in dialogue. It's okay to say, oh, there's a car pulling up outside and us not to see the car pulling up outside. But if there's like a plot point, hey, I know you're lying because you've got something up your sleeve. The audience expects to see the sleeve. Yeah. And yeah, um, yeah. but it's one of the few occasions, I think, where they, they had to shoehorn in, um, because most of the visual effects, uh, inc <laughs> including, uh, what's the name of the um, the uh, creature? Like, I'm going to say Betty, but that's all right, is it? Um, the the, yeah, the uh, sort of the sort of dragony kind of yeah i can't remember the yeah. name of it but yeah <laughs> the vegetarian uh killing pet <laughs> yeah like it's a serious that, like animation feat it's a serious like creature animation render yeah. it has shades of uh you know the dragons in in again in the game of thrones kind of thing it's that kind of ilk it's a different sort of creature but has these long kind of talon sort of um, claws on it and um, has some a vicious kind of mouth with lots of teeth in it and skin that kind of moves, you know, along its neck as it shakes its head. And uh, it's a really wonderful um, uh, apparition in the, in the story. It doesn't, it's not in a whole lot of scenes, but it's really well done, I think, and comes in, it, it feels different than most of the other things in the show, which are more I think cities, ships, environments, um, there aren't a lot of, to my memory, creatures. I think that's really one of the only big creature effects in the show, but it's it's very well um, executed, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I think that, um, I think it'd be worth doing, I don't think we can cover all the visual effects in all the episodes, but yeah. it'd be good to do some call-outs of visual effect shots um, that artists may have worked on just in isolation, like uh, rather than just sort of the so, so I'd I'd like to lead off with like a couple of shots that I think, or at least sequences that were really good. So my first one is, and I'll, I'll say these. I'm going to throw to you in a second, so you time to think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the first one is we've seen planets destroyed before. So when they actually had Terminus destroyed and it was blown up effectively, I thought the blowing up and the post blown up planet looked really good. And and the reason I sort of want to highlight that one is it's a bit like out the car window thing that we've talked about previously on the show, which is you would see in the script, um, and and the same could be said by the way of the way the ships jumped, mm -hmm. but but I think it's more true of the planet. It's like hey, in the script it says planets destroyed. Well, we've seen lots of planets destroyed. How are we going to make this one look different and not look like every other one that we've seen, but also be such a uh, spectacle that you could be watching it from the bridge and have the kind of reaction that Day has, but also not have the sort of Death Star explosion that you'd be like, well, anyone within, you know, 16 parsecs of that thing's going to yeah, die. Yeah, where it's just like a big energy ribbon and a bunch of like yeah. sparkles or something. Yeah. So that would be my my first call out. Whoever 
both designed that, but also actually the artists that implemented that, the shaders, the internal glow stuff, the way that it was comped and everything else. I just thought it was a really nice way to show an original but impressive explosion. Totally agree. Uh, and and I love was- too the, uh, in that same shot sequence though, where they show the planet destroyed. The other thing I thought was so cool was all of the empire ships that you see placed around the planet where they're kind of, you know, yep. they shot down the big ship that's crashed in and created the singularity. And they're all kind of hanging out there sort of watching everything fall apart and the the scale and then this incredible amount of backlighting in at least one of the shots where you get these kind of like God rays that are shooting through and all these tiny little ships on screen. I thought that really gave it a kind of scale as well as a, um, a, a kind of heightened the drama of the moment to visually like the design language that they deployed and the way all the elements were composited together in the shot I thought was really strong. Yeah. And, and to your point, it was such an important plot point that we got an idea that this was not just knocking out a few ships. This was knocking out the fleet Yeah, and to, to sort of, there were so many ships that were going to be destroyed in that sequence. Um, that it would have such an effect on like, so there's no easy coming back from that in the next, you know, 16 weeks back on, on, um, uh, at empire, because to build that many ships, to have that much infrastructure, like it was a lot that went uh, down because they had shown the rings around the home planet had been Mm -hmm. formed between season one and two. So clearly there's a lot of manufacturing capability back, but of course, without the ability to jump and with so much of the fleet devastated, it was, yeah, it was important that we got the scale. And I think you're right. The, the second one I was going to flag is I'm going to call it digital makeup on the spaces. Yes. I thought the spaces look, their sort of implants, their eyes, the way that they had the the sort of body shape that they had, it was all both plausible and original and attractive and totally sat in the shot from a VFX point of view. Totally. Applaud whoever worked on those shots. Yeah. And they, they're sort of, there's these kind of um, almost like self, like luminous kind of spots on the face yep. and uh, around the eyes. And even the eyes, I think the pupils kind of glow. And it's a gorgeous makeup and the actors that they cast, and this may also be partially in effect, they they are they are all very uh tall and lanky and almost they look almost elongated, like in a way that seems not quite what we'd expect to see of something or someone who was a human actor, right? They seem almost like like digital um uh recreations of people, but I think they're actually real actors who are digitally augmented. I'm not certain, but I, but they even have one or two of the characters, if or if all of them, I don't know if they all had this, had the spacers have this, um, who are the ones who kind of fold space, right, and allow them to travel. Yeah. Uh, but they, they even had almost like an ex machina-like torso that was semi-translucent in some shots, if I'm not mistaken. And if you remember a couple of episodes ago, when the whole um, sort of the sting was being mm-hmm, formulated. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes to their mothership and their mothership uh, is, they're all in zero gravity. And so to your point, not only do I love the design of them, but if you are somebody that lives in zero gravity and your thing is zero gravity, well, then you're going to be not heavy and muscular and able to deal with the forces of gravity, yeah. but thin and 
and willow-like. Yeah, atrophy uh, kind of somehow. Yeah. yeah. So I thought it 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 worked at a conceptual level. It For worked sure. As a, and then how do you come up with an original character that doesn't look just like a joke? Because there aren't mm-hmm. lots of aliens walking around. It's not like the cantina sequence in Star Wars where you've got this free reign to have any alien you like doing anything. There are a couple of aliens, as in the um, I said, I can keep on saying Betty, but I kind of wish I remember the name of the um, the creature that that uh, that was the pet. But anyway, yeah. clearly, like that's an alien, but it's mm-hmm. more like a creature alien than a humanoid actor alien. You don't have lots of people walking around uh, like you do in Star Wars. Yeah, and so a we human had to have who's them... evolved into this, like just yeah. like you're saying, it, it's reminiscent of. And okay, I know not everyone's favorite movie. I and I do have a weird broken part of myself where I have a soft spot for David Lynch's Dune. And one of the things I like about it is the space navigator, right? And at least in the story of Dune, which this has shades of Dune in it too, it's that same kind of epic writing, you know, but it's it's a similar idea of a a human who's consumed so much spice, right? To be able to fold space that they've become this kind of, you know, um, eraser head baby looking thing in a big glass tube, you know, and they've devolved into this strange form. That's just this kind of spice vessel that has, has a huge brain or something, but yeah, those, those ideas of an evolution of a humanoid into some other form, uh, as it relates to a specific purpose. Yeah. What you say about being in zero gravity and in space all the time. I mean, it's just such an interesting thing and the effects they use for it were just really, really cool. Are there other little visual effects or big visual effects stuff that you thought was nicely handled? So some of the really big visual effects stuff that I I just can't, I've gone back and watched it a couple of times is I think it's, it's in season one and it's when, uh, is it Gale travels to Trantor? Is Trantor the empire planet? It is, right? I got the name right? Uh, I think so. Yeah. (laughs) But when she first gets on the um, the ship with the spacers, it's the first time we really see that journey. Oh, I know what you're saying. And yep. there's a makeup thing that's like where she goes into stasis. And it's like a, yep. it looks like a, um, you know, that um, stuff they use for casts that they, you, you heat it up. It's like memory plastic. Have you ever seen that yep. stuff? And it's like a mesh and it's kind of this mesh that comes up over her face and it's not like a big deal. It's really just almost like a wipe, although I think it's actually more like a, a procedural thing that's kind of animating up over the actor's face. Um, and it's a cool effect. It's just a really neat concept and it's kind of imprisoning. They use a similar effect uh, for people who are imprisoned. Uh, they do it in this last uh, season, last episode or two where the... Um, the young woman who is the empress to be, right? And she's yep. the demoiselle does something that uh and they did puts the her in a, as well when they were yeah the the cloak being, that comes over yeah. and they're imprisoned and it's so frightening because it's it's just such a claustrophobic thing. But then the creation of uh Trantor as a city, uh there's a great breakdown online of uh visual effects from double negative. Um, and the work they did for the series where they build out the whole city, which in season one is connected to this space elevator, um, 
which is is blown up uh, in its first, not even might even be the first episode or the second episode or something. But it, it is the one of the most amazing uh, digital miniatures of a cityscape, like a kind of almost like a uh, what's the city planet in Star Wars called? The Star Wars universe, the uh, um, the, the big the, the big. Yeah, Coruscant. Yeah, it kind of has. It looks kind of like that, but kind of like the Blade Runner twenty forty nine L A. with the multi layers and stuff. It's this massive, massive digital city, and then connected to it is this space elevator that reaches from the surface of a planet all the way through the atmosphere up into space, and in a, a I guess a. Uh, is it a foundation attack or a terrorist attack or something against Empire? It's meant to be a terrorist attack. Yeah, a pair of terrorists. But whether that links back to the main story or not, I'm still waiting to see. Yet. But yes, it's meant to just be two. There's sort of a two terrorists pull it off. And but this not... this space elevator, you know, going, you know, hundred thousand plus feet, you know, into the outer reaches of the atmosphere or more, um, as it collapses and falls and crashes on a multi-layer, like mega city. I mean, the epic destruction is just, I mean, it's for a visual effects shot and a visual effects sequence for a team of visual effects artists, it's just such a spectacularly wild and crazy destruction. And it happens at night, if I'm not mistaken too. And the city at night, with all the lights uh, in it, it's just, it's an amazing uh, rendering. It's just really, really fun to watch. It's so yeah, cool. There's, there's meant to be uh, something like 80-ish layers built one on top of another yeah. on uh, Trentor. And of course, the lower layers never get to see the sun, which is a point they make in this one, which right. is after the space elevator crash. It meant that very... Uh, sort of unimportant people on the lower levels suddenly had a chance of seeing That's the sky right. because, yep. uh, but also they make a point in this one that, uh, and I, you know, it's obviously a hugely densely uh, populated planet, but a hundred million people died when that space elevator uh, collapsed. And I agree. It's a ridiculously, um, the effects, uh, the effects yeah. animation, the Sims for debris, dust, uh, you know, sparks like uh, huge pieces of debris that at scale in some of the shots appear small, but the physics of it, I mean, it, it's just so, I, it must have been extremely challenging as a sequence to work on, mm -hmm. but the um, the overarching effect of it and the way that it's rendered, comped, lit, I mean, it's it's just killer. It's really cool. It's definitely of of all the TV visual effects I've seen uh, in the course of my many moons of watching TV during the pandemic, especially. It's one of the most spectacular visual effects sequences I've seen on television. Like when it really feels like something from a a, a Hollywood major, you know, two hundred million dollar movie. I mean, it's so it's really killer. It's really good. And of course, 138 years later, when we pick it up in this season, they've built the artificial rings around mm -hmm. the planet, yep. um, which are the kind of like docking stations and stuff. Because Ooh. clearly, if you have 40 billion people on a planet yeah. and there's no nowhere free, there's no matter how much sort of, I mean, you're going to have to import materials, right? Like mm -hmm. people are just going to consume stuff. 
no matter how many sort of layers you devote to agriculture below it, the artificial light, it's uh, yeah. So that travel, uh, trade, like they just needed something that that elevator, um, you know, gave another, them that would another, have been replaced by the rings. Another epic visual effects sequence in season two, I believe, yeah. that I just think is, again, the design of it, the way it's directed, the way it's shot, and then the way the effects are rendered um, is in the attempted assassination of Brother Day of Empire um, in his bedchamber. And the way in which uh, our fearless robot protector, who will always be there, Demoiselle, comes to uh, uh, Brother Day's defense uh, is so uh, exciting. It's a great action fight sequence. And in the middle of it, her um, her head is severed across, uh, you know, the upper part of her skull down across uh, the bridge of her nose, uh, eliminating, I believe, one of her eyes or, or very close to the top of her eye on the other side in a perfect cleave, right? It's like a perfect slice across her head. But because she's a robot, it doesn't really impact her other than it kind of alters her voice and she looks uh, rather frightening, but she's still able to function and defend and... Uh, and uh, after defeating the assassins, uh, she quickly um, gets the medical team to uh, do whatever they have to do to save um, Empire from his wounds that maybe would have killed him if she didn't act quick enough. And then she proceeds to return to her own chamber and we see her uh, begin this process of regrowing like kind of nanotechnology kind of animation, the parts of her um, skull uh, and face that were uh, destroyed <laughs> in this attack. And it's another one that's just, it's a, it's a totally different kind of visual effect, but one that, and, and the way they comp it in the attack is we see it in surveillance video. That was the other part that I thought was really cool. So we see this really amazing digital effect, but it's then degraded in this kind of freeze frame of this surveillance video that's recorded digitally in the Empire's bedchamber or something, a security video. And I think that the way it's handled from a directorial standpoint, an art direction standpoint, and then really supported so well by the visual effects, it makes it really really uh a cool and just so engrossing like it really draws you in deeper to the story it, it for me anyway where i was just like dang that's so cool i spoke before about terminus being destroyed it's a completely separate shot but in the same sequence when the invictus has been dealt its kind of mortal blows mm -hmm. and so the the consecutive rings uh, now breach as if you've got a cake slice and taken a, yeah. a wedge out of the Invictus. And so now you've got a shot, it's just one shot, it's sort of like at a tilt angle, and you see this sort of glowing end end, I guess burnt on fire, whatever, ends of the rings. So it's now like a C shape as opposed to a complete rings. It's just a beautiful shot. It's so got so much detail in it. The lighting in it is excellent. And again, I give it like 
heaps of points because ships in space that have been attacked, we've seen it in Star Wars, Star Trek, just mm-hmm. right across the board. So when you're given a shot like that, I just think it's so much harder to come up with an original breathtaking totally shot than just uh, if you're given something that's like, well, no one's ever seen this before. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, I felt like whoever was doing the moving paintwork on the mural throughout the uh, yeah, series. That's also really cool. It's really nice. It's really subtle. It's not mm-hmm. the big Invictus uh, explosion sequence that would get attention. And, and yet, it's a huge if, plot point too. That's exactly, so cool. exactly. That yep. that has to, now you got to know that they couldn't have built that. So it's a huge set extension. And mm-hmm. then the stuff moves, which is really interesting, but you have yeah. to believe that it's sort of plausibly moving and not like weird kind of melting yeah. moving. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, nice, the set, nice work that, that. that effect, and you mentioned in brief there, the set extension, especially when we're looking down that long mm. hallway where the mural is painted, um, you know, obviously a set extension, but there are so many really just uh, incredibly well executed uh, digital set extensions throughout this show. Um, and there, I, I can't think of one there might be one, maybe in the first episode or two, where they're on the water, maybe. <laughs> but there, I can't think of really any of the set extensions, certainly in season two, the, what I've seen most recently, where there were set extensions where I was like, nah, I don't know. Like they were, they were pretty great. Like it's pretty seamless yeah. and pretty well integrated. And I think um, I, I was going to ask you though. I'm curious. You know, we were looking for a third because we knew Jason wasn't going to be able to do this one, and so I, I reached out to a couple of. Uh, former colleagues of mine who uh, I was like, oh, I'm sure they're watching this. And neither of them had been watching this. They knew about it, but they're like, oh, I haven't seen it. And so they didn't feel like comfortable coming on, joining us to talk about it, which maybe in another show they'll come on sometime. But um, I was sort of fascinated to find that uh, some, you know, pretty, you know, geeky, nerdy uh, effects buddies uh, hadn't been watching the show. And I'm I'm curious if if what your experience has been like. Do you know a lot of people that are watching this? Because I I I feel like this is such a fun effects driven effects heavy show that also I think has great acting, great writing, um, you know, great cinematography, great costumes, props, the whole thing. It's a really fun watch. But I wonder if people are really are seeing it. Like how how popular is it? I think it's a function of streaming. I don't think it's a problem with the show not resonating with an audience. I think it's for a whole lot of people, they don't have Apple TVs. Yeah. And so if you don't have an Apple TV, you can't watch it. And so right. I think in the in the pecking order of things, what happens is if you don't have, not like an Apple fanboy like me, so you're not naturally going to have Apple TVs. Yeah. You're like, well, what's the best streaming service for me to get? I probably want one that's you know really... You want Netflix, you want HBO, and you want Hulu, Disney, right? If you've got or kids, Disney, right? yeah, yeah. And so, Good if point. this was on Disney or on, if it was on HBO or even Netflix, I think it would be vastly bigger. But not because of any other reason. I just think less people are buying into Apple TV because it just, quite frankly, has some great shows, but not yeah. the same volume of shows. Netflix has so much more material. Now, Apple, on the other hand, is doing some great shows um, like Hijack uh, that I think are really, really yeah, good shows. Yeah, Hijack but... was great. Yeah. Ted Lasso, very popular. 
But I think Ted Lasso has been the only breakout hit that they've had that would be at the level where you'd go, oh, I need to get Apple TV to watch Yeah, it would get people to go buy a, a box yeah. or to a TV, you know, a smart TV that has access to the, the app or something. So making an extension from that, if the only people that also the main thing that's driven people to get Apple TV is Ted Lasso, yeah, then Foundation and Ted Lasso don't have a great Venn diagram. You know, like if you're into the humor of that and it's a bit Saturday night live slash alumni slash sure. you know, sports, whatever, then foundation isn't sort of the, oh, well, gosh, Ted Lasso foundation, perfect match. <laughs> so, yeah. But that being said, I think Apple needs to build that up. And the only way to do it is to have shows. But if they had like 10 shows like this and three more Ted Lassos and a couple more whatevers, so it's possible that this show will build over time. Like let's say they go to five series like yeah, Game of Thrones. Yeah. I can imagine by series four or five that people are like, oh my God, I'm going back to watch Foundation from the beginning because it's a gain to kind of word of mouth, whatever. Um, I hope so. so yeah. I mean, I hope that happens only because I think it's it's definitely, they're spending a lot of money on it. There are some, like we said at the beginning, there's some really talented people working on the show behind the scenes as well as people in front of the camera um and it it's pretty compelling episodic television in yeah in a real science fiction kind of universe and i i think it's a shame it would be a shame if um it would be like uh you know if people went and saw denny villeneuve's uh, dune part one and were just like eh and we weren't going to have part two, although it has been delayed for a while because of the strike. But, um, you know, I, but don't I you just feel like that, it's that working part two is going to be me. great. Right. And I think that this show is kind of it's in that same zeitgeist. It has that oh, same yeah. ambition. And I think, it, it, you know, if you love Dune, you probably the, like this. The, I think it's landing so much better than the uh, Rings, you know, the new oh, for sure. sequel. Yeah, like I think that the, felt to me like. Yeah, I agree. I think the the Amazon Lord of the Rings uh, power of Rings of Power is that what yeah. it's called? Yeah, I think yeah. Um, there's it's again beautifully shot and uh, you know uh, some great visual effects in the Rings of Power and stuff. But I couldn't get through it. I just was like, eh, I just don't care. Like I, you know, I'm not as interested exactly. in it. And I wanted to be into it because they're also. Uh, you know, Bezos and company were investing a huge amount of money in that. I mean, I, I think there were some stories in the popular press about, you know, it being some of the biggest budgets, you know, uh, in mm -hmm. television and it just didn't click. It didn't land. And I, I applaud um, the executives uh, who are uh, working and running the uh, Apple TV plus uh, programming right now because they i feel like they up the ante here in season two with foundation i hope that their numbers are such that um although i suppose everything's kind of on hold right now but that a season three uh does come to fruition because i feel like they're really just hitting their stride with this one i wanted to talk to you also if i could about uh picking up on your set extension point earlier so mm -hmm. um Roxanne Dawson was talking about, remember in the third last episode, I think it was, um, where Constance was about to be executed by the uh, guillotine yes. collar? Yes, yep. 
So she was talking about, I thought it was so funny. I listened to her talk about this. She was like, so they had to have that outdoor setting where the mm -hmm. public execution is going on. And they were yep. using some kind of, you know, intergalactic YouTube to broadcast it. Right. <laughs> okay. But the thing was, if you looked at it, I thought it looked good. I just thought that whole execution sequence was fine. Those are, but she was those like, are hard shots because it's daylight and it's a big city. And they set it on these like this landing on top of this large building yeah. high above the city, which I, I think gives them an opportunity to make a shot design that maybe is more forgiving of the things that make shots like that, that can make shots like that, I think feel really planar and really flat. I think that's the thing that's really tough when you have a limited amount of set. But I agree. I think that at least that sequence and that setting, like, you know, when they first fly in, you're like, uh-oh, this will be a tough one, you know, thinking from an effects standpoint. But then when they get to that landing and it's that scene, I think I thought it came off pretty, pretty effectively. And especially when the um, scenario takes place that allows uh, Constance to essentially escape. So Roxanne is obviously uh, the director. She's not a visual effects supervisor, but she's, you know, worked in visual effects and loads sure. of really great things. So she turns up at the location and it's basically a car park right <laughs> and and that's it like they're yeah this is what we're doing it's the car park and she's yeah, like yeah. uh-huh this is the kind of Great. magnificent whatever <laughs> and the only thing is that in the uh, in that sort of near distance is the ocean that you can see which of mm -hmm. course is the only thing that makes the place interesting except for the ocean's all going to go away right because yeah. that's a real ocean where they're filming yep. and that's not going to be uh on uh, on the planet so so she's basically like, so I've got a big piece of concrete bitumen, asphalty kind of, you know, whatever. And I have to make this the the uh, most, uh, you know, incredible, uh, impressive and uh, show of power kind of. So I think we, we sometimes forget, like, it, before you see the end solution, it can be kind of daunting, right? If you were the visual sure. effects supervisor, you're like, so what we've got basically here is kind of a flat piece of nothing. And I have to make this incredibly impressive. Okay, sure. Well, I guess we're going to need some shoot off, and you know, so well, you, you just gotta have to have start have building that out. Massive previous, you know, and really plan what you're going to do to know what you're even going to, how you're even going to shoot in the car park, you know. Yeah, and yet, you know, time and time again, we've done interviews with people where they've gone, we, you know, this sequence was shot in a car park, kind of thing, or this sequence was shot. And I always think, like, I, I think we just need to give a beat and recognition to those people that turn up at the car park and go, sure, I can make this an award-winning shot. <laughs> yeah. But, but there's nothing there, right? There's nothing to work with. It's sort of different, I think, if you've got like an Aztec ruin and you say, oh, okay, well, we're going to shoot here because such a great location and then we're going right. to augment it. There's so much more to, to be feeding into your creative process. I think they're like, like a really seasoned and experienced VFX crew and team though you know if you've done enough of those things you kind of start to get a sense of like when you do ones that don't work that great you know as you first get the first car park shot and you come back and you're like it's got to look like we're in a stadium or in a you know at the edge of a cliff near the ocean <laughs> you know whatever it is and uh and you realize like ah oh, you know just it didn't okay we know what we need to do you can get all the pieces working correctly but it just something's not quite right like either there's a 
you know, a lighting mismatch or like some kind of maybe a mild perspective problem that you can't quite resolve. Um, but the more you do those things, you know, like anything in effects, I think, you know, you learn from your mistakes too, right? And then you get better and better. And so you get an experienced crew and they've done enough of those and they've pre-visited it and really planned it out. Like, I think it's, you can take the mundane and turn it into something pretty spectacular. I think that's, it's hard, but I think it's with the right crew and the right uh, design. I think it's totally doable now in a way that it was much more challenging, you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> well, I sure. think the, I think the pivotal thing here is they shot it outside. Like, yeah. Yeah. Your point about the lighting, like the one thing that they gained by being in a car park is they had a big outdoor set where everyone was lit convincingly for daylight, which is exactly yeah. what would have been the hardest to be. Yeah. yeah. Do you know, is, is a lot of this stuff shot in New Zealand and or Australia? No, that, some bunch of the stuff was shot in, in Europe and in um, uh, like the um, place where the uh, Mentalics are, is like some weird like Canary Islands or something. Really? Because um, there's the sequence yeah. in the, the sequence with the, the, mentalics with the older woman who i think is a a kiwi yeah that actress. yeah she is yeah yeah and uh and there's a sequence in it where they're moving through what looks like a spot i remember stopping at when after working on king kong and nearly killing myself we're finishing that show but i remember we we were driving around the south island and there's a place uh somewhere on the i guess the west coast of the south island i think which pancake rocks where there's these kind of striated kind of smokestack style rocks that as a natural geological, you know, formation must've been carved by some glacier or something at some point in time. And, um, it looked like they were moving through that. It literally looked like pictures I have from that place. And I was like, I mean, look, oh, I wonder right. if they I, shot it in, yeah. in New Zealand, but I don't know. I, to my knowledge, it's not primarily shot in New Zealand, but it yeah. absolutely you know, I could be completely wrong. Hey, I was going to say one of the things that I think helps get good visual effects is just really good thinking from your showrunners and your production staff and everybody else. For sure. And they don't generally make problems that just they have to fix in post. Mm -hmm. And um, and they're clever about the way that they're doing things. And I, I heard of one example that I thought so obvious to to do but so rarely done i don't know if you remember in episode five but and there's a kind of a f sequence where harry's talking to his closest thing he has to a son raish oh yeah uh-huh yeah yeah so he's talking to him and it's like you know the reason you're never going to succeed is because you never count on people and we don't mm -hmm. know if it's a memory we don't know if it's a flashback whatever it is okay so that is a look call back to season one when um, the whole thing happens with the knife and Harry yep. and and uh, Gail jumps in the pod and off she goes. When they were shooting that in season one, they didn't even have the um, green light to make season two yet because, you know, right, they're only sure. fairly early in it. But uh, David Goya said, look, I think there's a shot that we're going to need in season two if season two comes ahead and we're here and we have all the sets and we have everything. And so he got Apple to agree to let them film that sequence two and a half years ago because they had the actor, they had everyone in makeup, they had the sets. And he's like, it's going to be so much cheaper to shoot it now. And if we don't use it and you don't renew us, you've lost a few, you know, like a day's shoot. But if we do, it's going to save us a fortune. 
And of course, that's what they did. They shot it. And then lo and behold, the series is a success. They get approved for season two. And so, when they want to drop that so shot in. cool. As opposed to saying, well, we have to recreate this thing, but mm-hmm. all the sets have been broken down. You're going to have to do it digitally. It's going to have to be yeah. a comp. You know, it it makes me think of, I just listened to yesterday, walking home from work, I listened to, um, I don't know if you ever listened to the Team Deacons podcast with Roger mm. and James Deacons. It's fantastic. It's, I mean, there's oh, so yeah. much great conversations about, you know, how how to, you know, get on with people too. Aside from technical things they talk about, but they talk about like what makes somebody the person you want to work with again on a show, you know? And it's like, it's like, being a good person, you know, being like Johnny on the spot and ready to go and like having a good attitude. And I mean, there's a lot of great stuff in that. Uh, and both of them, both Roger and and James uh, are just phenomenal and fascinating to listen to. But they interviewed um, uh, the guy, the showrunner and actor, his name is escaping me right now, from Barry, HBO's Barry, the oh, yeah. SNL comedian guy. Uh, I'm Bill Hyde Bill Hader, that's right. Oh, and, wow. And so, so he he uh, always wanted to make movies. That was mm-hmm. always his dream. And he got into, you know, doing comedy and all this kind of stuff and did great impressions and, you know, is a, a pretty funny uh, gentleman. But he always wanted to make uh, films. And so him and I think it's, is it John Berg or Peter Berg? I can't remember who's business partner. But they um, got hooked up by their agents and they wrote this story about, you know, a guy who comes back from war and he's sort of working as a hitman, but he goes to acting school, right? And so he makes the show. He's the show runner. And he directed a number of episodes, but he talked about, um, you know, they, James Deacons asked him, so, you know, can you explain to us and to our audience, what is a show runner? <laughs> right. And it's the television is a writer's medium, right? It's kind of how he mm-hmm. talks about it. And when you look at David Goyer and you just the story you just told, it's kind of this is the same thing. He's talking about how uh in Barry season one or or in season two, he's having different directors come in and he because he's in the show too. He's acting in the show as well as writing it with his uh partner. And they're Uh, having different directors come in and a director, a great director, wonderful television director might say, uh, oh, well, you know, they don't want to do insert shots, right? Like they just want to go to the next thing. And he was laughing about how they never want to do the insert shots, but he will have to stop them as showrunner, like not wanting to step on their toes at letting them be the director, but he has to come in and say like, well, you know, you really need to get this insert, insert shot because they don't know what's coming because he's the writer, right? Because it, as the writer's medium, he'll say, we really need this insert shot because, you know, three episodes later, there's a callback to that. That's really important as a plot point to this thing that happens later in the season with character X. And that is exactly what you're describing, you know, something where, you know, a show runner in this case, maybe he's also directing that episode, but, you know, if someone else was directing it might know that, Hey, like if we get the opportunity to do this thing, we should cover this because it's going to come back and be really important. And having that, that brain that can see all the way into the future episodes or the future seasons, I think is really, really key. And that's something that I didn't really know, um, was the difference between like, you know, a director versus in the case of television, a show runner. And I think that distinction is kind of cool. And I think that story you told speaks to the same thing. 
Yeah, and I think the really important thing, this sort of brings us back to where we started the conversation, I think, nicely, is that you have to have thought it through. Like, you mm-hmm. can't just, because I think my biggest criticism of Lost is it just felt like each week they were trying to build on whatever they'd done so far and put the, yes. you know, that um, Buster Keaton thing of sort of putting the tracks down in front of the, the train just as the train is approaching where it needs the right. tracks. Yeah. And so if you're reactionary like that, then you don't have the chance to build up really good payoffs that, you know, the audience believes that they not being cheated by. Whereas if you are a good showrunner and you've really thought through the big arcs, now maybe you haven't solved individual points. Yeah. Maybe not but, everything, um, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think we saw that in in Andor too. In that, when we talked about that, and the Tony Gilroy showrunner on Andor, one of the reasons it I think had such great payoff and felt so successful as an arc for a season is that same thing of like it had a it had a a trajectory. It wasn't just like you know, oh, we gotta let's keep going. Like, oh, we'll get another season. Let's keep going. Like, it has an arc, and it has an arc that has a a set destination with different places along the way waypoints that they have to stop at yeah yeah it's interesting cameron does this as well it's like you you kind of you set yourself a target mm-hmm. of where you want them to go not knowing in the specifics how you're going to get your characters there but totally. you know like i want to get to this point where this is going to happen and so if i know this character is going to die um we should set up points along the way but you're also informing the writers because obviously the show writer showrunner isn't doing all the writing mm-hmm. you're you're informing them so look this character is going to die at the end of the season right so we right. really need to have the audience feeling this i don't know how you're going to get them to feel this but you know you need them to have them feeling this you need them to be aware of that you need them to um you know know the gun is is uh, going to misfire because it's misfired in you know six episodes earlier where we've forgotten about it but of course when it misfires in the final one uh, we don't feel like it's a you know one-off cheat, and um, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I really feel that is the thing, as you said, that makes a difference. Andor was another great example of that, where you just felt like they had really thought through the arcs, and whether they had written every individual little bit to get them there didn't really matter. It wasn't a um, putting the the rails down just as the train was approaching oh, and and, and lost. Lost is a great example of the other extreme, and you could I think even make the case that. Although I guess maybe some people would debate this, but I think the final uh, season of Game of Thrones, also because I think the the writer George R. R. Martin hadn't even written that part of the books, yep. those those parts of the books yet, and it felt like it came to a kind of uh, abrupt ending. Maybe I, I felt that way certainly as a viewer, and because I think because they didn't know exactly where they were going and how long it was going to take to get there. And so I think they arrived at that destination so quickly and abruptly that it felt as an audience member coming, you know, on that journey, it felt kind of like you hit a wall sort of. So Matt, would maybe this is what has been the issue with movies. You don't have a showrunner of the movies. Once you try serializing movies, we're no longer talking about you know, like you had the Godfather, Godfather Part Two. They mm-hmm. really didn't have the Godfather Part Two, and they're writing one. But that was it. That's like, well, we're going to write a whole new film, yeah. and it's going to be in this world. But when we go over to Star Wars, especially the ones that um, you know happened uh, as the sort of the last three parts of the trilogy, it felt like they kept on bringing in different writers, sorry, directors and writers, yeah. and so each film 
wasn't building off what had happened in the previous one. They were saying, oh, well, what are we going to do? Well, I'm interested in this theme, so I'm just going to explore this theme. And it's like, well, hang on a second. Uh, you know, if that's the theme that you're exploring, we would have set it up differently in the previous film. But I think by I think contrast, it, the early Marvel films had yeah, that. I feel like, yeah, sorry, that's what I, early no, Marvel I, films that's, had that. That's exactly what I was going to cite too, is I think, you know, if you look at, I think they called it phase one, right? Yeah. Of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like, I think that all of that building up to the Avengers, right, was sort of the the culminating event, I believe, in that phase one. Uh, it it did feel like they're in Kevin Feige and whomever else was mm-hmm. in that team, you know, they seemed like they had a pretty clear con- conceptual idea of, you know, we are going to build all these, you know, ancillary pieces that will weave connective tissue between and then arrive at this destination where they all unite to save earth or whatever, whatever, you know, whatever the story is. And, um, and it works. And I think it, but I think there's competing interests there where, you know, the, I, I mean, I think it's just that, you know, we're in a, it's a commercial, uh, you know, populist business, right? Television movies. Like it's not, Mm. you know, there's a fine art kind of piece of the puzzle there, but it's, it's technical art, right? And it's like executing and telling a story and it's a business too. the, the cost and the expense and the, the corporate money that's involved. And, you know, you land on something that's a hit, you know, everybody's like, oh, we love the new, you know, shamrock shake or whatever, you know? And so you want to make as many of those as you can, because it's a hit, everybody loves it, but then you make so many of them and, you know, the, the, the machine that wants to churn out more and more and more, you, you lose that showrunner-esque kind of voice, right? Or that, that person who's there overseeing it with an eye on story character, the things that make them good. And instead you just have somebody who's, like you said, maybe maybe there are one-offs and things that are really great and that's cool, you know? But I think the overarching arc of it is more about the business. It's about the profit center. It's about, you know, shareholder dividends and stuff. And the piece that I think we all love is kind of can get lost, um, you know? And I think it's becomes a less successful product in the end. The studios have become uh, in, you know, the modern age, they are mega corporations. I mean, they were always kind of that to an extent, but in you look back into the 50s, 60s, and 70s and stuff in the old studio system, also corrupt in its own way for sure. But there were opportunities for, you know, artisans and, and um, you know, real uh, visionaries to come along and shake up that system. We still have that today. I think, you know, the certainly the the push for new voices, new perspectives, diverse voices, like, you know, there are studios who are really doing that and doing a really amazing job that is excellent and fantastic. Like, and we're seeing things we haven't seen, uh, which is wonderful. But I think in the world of some of these big um uh what would you call them? These big um uh tent franchise films yeah like i think be it star wars or marvel or whatever like there's occasionally you know bits and pieces that are pretty cool and successful but the overarching milieu <laughs> uh i think is maybe a little less interesting uh at least yeah to me. i i don't know do you, i remember when i was little 
sequels were always basically just never as good as the original and they always mm-hmm. sort of cracked the same jokes and yeah i mean uh look crocodile dundee did the australian film like it's hugely <laughs> successful film but when they came to make a sequel they were like well we need the that's not a knife joke yeah we had the hey that's not yeah, a knife it becomes joke. a formula that, that landed so now we have to use that joke again by the way i just got dragged kicking and streaming to see uh my big fat greek wedding three now i speak to the audience <laughs> of this podcast by saying even if your life depends on it don't see this film um it is such a bad sequel in the way that sequels were when i was a kid in this early 80s or the end of the 70s right where it was like the sequel is just the same joke rerun and it's badly directed extremely badly edited and and it's just doesn't have quite the same number of even actors that the original had and it's sort of like got a little less money this time and so it's like a bit you know whatever and you're just like oh please god no i actually was in that film and i made a conscious decision to go to sleep because i thought it was better use of my time than uh than reading to the end of the film um and uh you know i was with some other people and i didn't want to like just get up and walk out and make them all walk out i just went you know i'm just gonna i'm just gonna have a, a nap it was so bad but that had no sense that was just like we're gonna crank out the same thing again yeah and and what i think happens if you get so it is possible as i said to make a sequel that is magnificent right and sure the godfather is the classic case right where but then there's the jaws films where you feel like we're just going to make another jaws what are we going to do this Although time doing it 3D. I, I do have to say yeah jaws 3 3d had the best uh commercial tagline which was jaws 3 in 3d this time it's personal no 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 so i'll ask you on that the, the, the second film had an even better tagline which was <laughs> jaws 2 just when you thought it was safe to get back in the water yeah that it's... is the greatest tagline <laughs> of all time because i lived that i was like i'm in australia we have a lot of sharks we just kind of recovered emotionally from jaws so that we could go back to the beach and not be freaked out every time we saw a shadow in the water. And yeah, they came sure. out with the sequel and we were like, oh, God. Dang. Anyway, <laughs> but the marketing here way exceeded the quality of the sequels in the Jaws thing. Yeah. But anyway, that's my thing, right? So, yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is just if you do have a good showrunner, to, to your point, and mm-hmm. they have that, because um, I think Barry is terrific and does have intelligence in its writing that pays off it's really it's so dark but it's like yeah funny in its own dark humor kind of way the mind that came up with that certainly in the the final season of it is pretty twisted bill Hader. oh yeah (laughs) and nice direction as well nice uh nice acting yeah Mm -hmm. do a podcast night we seem to have run long, even though we didn't have uh, our third uh, brother with us. Yeah, today, but how did we do that? It up. But yeah. it was great talking to you, my friend. Indeed, you too. I, it's a pleasure to talk about the show. I all I can say is I I really do hope uh, anybody out there who likes listening to us yammer on about visual effects um, and uh, the shows and movies that uh, contain them. Uh, if you haven't had the opportunity to watch season one and two of foundation i i would strongly encourage you to just give it a go at least like see if and if for nothing else than just to see some really pretty awesome visual effects work a uh, matt backed guarantee there you go yeah so um so, so 
where uh, can people connect with you if they if they choose to? Uh, you can find me on what is it uh, Mastodon dot social, I guess. I switched over to the big server from the little one, um, Matt Wallen, and on Threads, same thing. And at VCU Arts, where I teach and chair a program, and um, and I was going to just say too, if you if anybody out there is looking for a super weird movie to watch, my wife and I watched this uh, Norwegian movie called. The English title is Sick of Myself, about this um, very strange uh, young woman who goes to great lengths to get attention. And I don't know if I even know what it means, but it's all shot in Oslo. It's really interesting, but it is so weird. Um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm obviously over at uh, FX Guide. We've got some interesting stuff I've been doing on uh, machine learning stuff over there at the moment. We did got two-parter on uh, using uh, machine learning for sort of three-dimensional um, uh, sort of, well, hang on, I'm, I'm, I'm inelegantly describing what I'm trying to say. Let me start, <laughs> let me start that again. We have some interesting things going on over at FX Guide. One of them is uh, two-parter on NERFs. The other one has been on uh, training data. And uh, the Wasn't NERFs like we... the big thing at Seagraph this year too? Like oh, every, yeah, completely. Yeah. So part two is about to come out. We're looking at uh, applications of NERFs, but NERFs are going to be vast, huge in uh, visual effects terms. Did, so, did you read anything or hear anything about too? I just saw a video yesterday about a uh, Gaussian splatter. I did it's not. another technique for generating a kind of NERF-like 3D environment from images. It looked pretty interesting. I'll send it to you. <laughs> And if you want to hear more about Andor, uh, there's also an FX podcast, uh, number 357, uh, where we were talking to uh, Scott Pritchard. We were talking about Andor, obviously, in this episode, but that's me uh, just in a conversation with him. Uh, and if you were um, uh, listening to the FX podcast, also the one after that was with Rob Legato uh, discussing The Equalizer 3. And that would be my film recommendation, The Equalizer 3. Even though I've just been discussing how sequels can be bad, this is one of those rare cases where the Equalizer 3 is really good. Yeah. Yeah. Denzel does a spectacular go job. Yeah. And and we're kind of doing this series in the FX podcast where we're talking to people that aren't, say, straight visual effects supervisors necessarily. I mean, Rob obviously is multi-academy award winner, but we're talking to him about second unit directing, uh, not oh, cool. about VFX supervising. And uh Boy, has Rob got some stories from Marty Scorsese and just like just I mean all the people that he's worked with um, over the years, uh, and you know, obviously Lion King and just a ton of stuff that's really interesting in his career. But yeah, listening to him talk about second unit directing, he's such an accomplished DOP as well as a second unit director. We often don't discuss those things when we're talking about his visual effects work. So that's again all over at FX Guide. Until next time that's it for us uh thank you so much matt and uh as we said uh jason whenever he's freed up from the incredibly cool we can't discuss because we don't know stuff that he's doing in asia well, um, he'll be back on the show until then see ya if you have any questions or comments please email us at vfx at fxguide.com copyright fx guide llc